You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. And Florida announced last week uh, the schedule for spring practice, and football is back on March the 12th. And joining me to preview our first part of spring practice is will miles and you can find him on twitter at will miles sec and his site read and reaction.com uh will just mentioned spring practice starts off march 12th first of four days that will be open to the public and uh hey football will be back uh in live and in color pretty uh pretty soon man it barely feels like it ended because last year we didn't have a bowl game and the season was pretty much over by the time McElwain got fired and this year they're playing in a new year's day bowl game and then you got and then you got uh, signing day and a month later we're back there out on the field so it, it has seemed like a much more compressed off season this year that is for sure yeah big events uh, yeah it does co- with coaching changes and recruiting like you said signing day and, and following the 2020 class yeah everything just kind of flies by uh, as I mentioned, March 12th is the opening of spring practice, and there's other dates that are open to the public as well, March 14th, 23rd, and 27th. Uh, each open practice will be held at the Sanders practice fields, uh, and Florida announced that bleachers will be set up uh, on the east side along the indoor practice facility. So, Will, it is a much different feel than a year ago when we really didn't know what to expect, and, and now expectations a year later are already uh, a bit high with a lot less questions. Still some important ones as we uh, get our spring preview started. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think it's always a new it's always a new team, always a new year. Um, you know, what, what you did last year doesn't necessarily mean much of anything this year, except for maybe the insight that it gives you into what you might be looking for during the spring practices, during the spring game, and then as you get into fall camp. So, um, you know, it's an exciting time. I'm sure these guys are – are, have enjoyed the off season where they've gotten a lot of praise as opposed to last year where they didn't get much at all. And, uh, you know, so it'll be interesting to see what Mullen decides to do this year as opposed to some of the things that he did last year. All right, before we get started, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on news jackscom slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes. And I uh, recently posted one today of the Carson Beck commitment uh, to Georgia. So if you haven't checked that checked that out yet, go uh, please go check that out. A lot of good insight from Denny Thompson. Uh, he is the quarterback trainer uh, for one Carson Beck and uh, definitely shed a lot of insight on the recruitment of Beck and why he may have chose Georgia over Florida. And uh, some really good insight as well on Anthony Richardson, uh, the quarterback target for Florida. And uh, – Hey, even some insight. I'll get into it into it later with Felipe Franks and the Emory Jones uh, quarterback competition. But you can find that episode at news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown, as well as iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and Spotify. When using those services, please share, rate, and review the show. Subscribe on all those platforms and on social media. Follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. 
Will, uh, before we get into the spring, I just mentioned the Carson Beck uh, commitment to Georgia. Uh, had an episode on it. We won't spend a whole lot of time on it, but you did release an article as well. Uh, your initial thoughts and uh, kind of, uh, we'll, you know, we'll let people uh, go to readreaction.com to read the article. Yeah, you know, I never really get too upset about one recruit or, and and particularly after what I've been writing the last couple of weeks where, you know, basically once you get outside of the top 50, it doesn't really make a whole lot of the the rate that guys pan out becomes a lot less. This is this is more just reflective of the symptom that George is really dominating on the recruiting trail. And, you know, they've got 18 five-stars they've signed over the last four years, 58 four-stars versus zero five-stars and 54 stars for Florida. So that's quite a talent gap that Dan Mullen's going to have to make up. I think you can make an argument that he develops his players better than some other coaches out there, and certainly maybe we'll even develop those players better than Kirby does. But at the end of the day, if the guy's already a developed product when he shows up on campus, um, it's going to be hard to beat. And, you know, you you want to be it, – it's not a good thing to have one hand tied behind your back when you go into that Georgia game every year. And at some point, this is going to have to turn around. They're going to have to bring in those guys. And a guy in Jacksonville who's who's a high-level recruit is a guy you never want to leave, never want to let leave. You never want to let him leave to go, you know, to, to Indiana. But you sure as heck don't want to let him leave to go to Georgia. And I think that's where people sort of get a little bit, a uh, little bit concerned. Just that a high-level Jacksonville guy who had really been leaning Florida from everything that we had heard over the last, you know, over the last month or so all of a sudden goes up to Athens to decides to go there. But, you know, again, it's one recruit. You never get too upset about congratulate the guy to go where he wants to go. And hopefully we beat him in the, in the coming years. Yeah, absolutely. So as we said, you can go to readreaction.com, read Will's thoughts there and an episode I posted earlier today uh, as well. So uh, let's start spring football preview here. Well, last week uh, there was a lot of talk about the quarterback position from a couple of different places. Will Dan Mullen in a speaking engagement, uh, said it was an open competition for the quarterback position. And then uh, this got the ire of Gator Nation here. Bleacher Report releases an article <laughs> that was picked up by Paul Feinbaum where they list Florida as having one of the toughest quarterback situations heading into the 2019 season. So I guess with those two items, we can ask a question to which I think we already know the answer uh, in is Felipe Franks or should he be the starting quarterback at Florida? I say yes uh, for me, as I expect him to progress even more. Uh, if he does it, then things could get interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess you always play the guy who gives you the best chance to win so that you maintain credibility with your team because you wouldn't tell the left tackle, oh, we're going to play the freshman because we want to see him develop if you've got a junior left tackle who can play. Um, just like you wouldn't play the junior if the freshman was beating him out. I think you play the guy who goes out there and 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 allows you to win the game. And the same thing should happen here. I mean, if Emory Jones comes out and just outplays Franks in spring camp, fall camp, and then maybe they split reps to start with and he's just playing better, you got to play him. But at the same time, if they're even, I think Franks has shown that he can win. He can win some games for Florida. Now, certainly there were some hiccups in there as well. And you know that South Carolina game, there was sort of the whole game sort of turned on a on a play where he threw the ball into traffic. If that ball gets intercepted, maybe the whole season looks different. So, um, you know, 
last year's quarterbacking performance was much, much, much better than it was the year before, but it wasn't Heisman Trophy, trophy worthy. And if you think you've got somebody in Emory Jones who has that kind of capability and he wins the competition, I mean, I think you let him play. But again, it's a competition and it should be a, it should be an open competition at every spot. And I think that's kind of what Mullen's saying is, you know, the Gator standard is, is that you're going to compete for your spot and, you know, nothing's given to you and you're going to have to earn it. And Franks is going to have to go out and earn it just like he did last year. And certainly he earned maybe having that the lead going into the spring, but you can't just rest on your laurels. He's going to have to get better. And the same thing with Emory Jones. He's going to have to get better too. Yeah. I don't want to you know make it look like or sound like we're in this podcast trying to create a quarterback controversy, you know, because I really, I didn't even honestly think about it a whole lot till Mullen had those comments. And now, you know, just a week later and I had Denny Thompson on, I'll get into you know, about the Carson Beck commitment and he, what everything that he brought up in this competition too. But to kind of go back to Mullen's comments, you know, is it to keep the quarterback room on their toes? Uh, you know, everybody who's involved, you know, you don't want uh, Frank Franks or Emory disinterested if they know they're not the guy, uh, you know, keep it's, that's one way of looking at some of those comments that Dan Mullen threw out there. Uh, but, you know, as far as the Bleacher Report article and, and listing the quarterback situation tough right now, I I can't go that far with a lot of those other teams that were also listed on that list. And when you had FSU and you had Miami and you had Penn State, teams who don't even know who their starter is, they only have one option at quarterback. You know, Florida, is it tough in in a way? Yes, if you believe there is a true quarterback competition, but comparatively speaking to those other schools, it's not even close. Heck, I'll even say Georgia has it tougher right now. In, in 2019, if Jake Fromm goes down, where do they go uh, but behind him? So that Bleacher Report article, and I know a lot of that really caught Gator Nation because Paul Fahman featured it, really caught the attention of Gator Nation. But, you know, I, I don't see it right now. Could it get to that point where it's tough if, if Frank struggles, if he's the starter and, and he struggles and, and Mullen has to turn to another quarterback? Sure. But, you know, we've seen Mullen is going to give Frank's or maybe whoever the starting quarterback is a long leash. And, you know, what Frank's did toward the end of last season warrants consideration uh, in there not really being a quarterback battle. And this is Frank's job to lose. Yeah, well, I mean, Franks took quite a step forward when you looked at how he played, you know, in that second half against South Carolina and then how he played against Florida State and certainly how he played against Michigan. But, I mean, he didn't throw over 200 yards, I don't think, in any game during the year. So it wasn't as if he was he was lighting up scoreboards. But, again, he's got an enormous amount of ability. He's only a junior. So it's not as if you're trying to make a decision where you're playing for the future here instead of – and and. I don't know. I, I heard what I heard what Denny said on the podcast earlier today. And you know, the reality is if Emory Jones were to transfer because Frank's played, he's got to sit out a year. So you're just sort of wasting a year. He's already had his redshirt year. So I you know, maybe that's true, but I, I don't necessarily see that either. I, I think maybe what you see here is what we thought we were gonna see coming into twenty eighteen, which is Felipe Franks is the starter, but Emory Jones sort of spells him a lot like Tim Tebow did in two thousand and six. And that's something that you you know Mullen has experience doing, has done. Um he certainly doesn't have to shy away from using Emory Jones because he doesn't have to be worried about burning a redshirt year. I mean, he's already used the redshirt at this point. So, you know, I can envision a scenario where you bring in Emory Jones and in some respects to prevent Franks from taking the beating that he took last year because Franks ran a lot last year and towards the end of the year, you could see there were a couple of times um, in the South Carolina game, especially where he, he, you could tell he had got, he had taken a pretty decent hit. 
And you know, if you don't want to expose your throwing quarterback to that, then you bring in but you bring in the guy who's got a little bit better running ability, have him come in, have him supplement, certainly have him play once you get ahead. And you know, there were a bunch of games last year where Franks was still in the game when they were up by, you know, 40 points. I don't think that'll happen this year. I think once they get up, um, once they get up big in some of those cupcake games and, and maybe even, you know, the game against Tennessee is a good example. Um, that game last year is a place where Emory Jones this year will come in and play. Yeah, I think uh, going and looking, what was it? Um, the Vanderbilt game where he had 284 yards was the only SEC opponent over 200. Uh, I'm looking for it now. Yeah, was the only SEC opponent over 200 yards. Uh, Mississippi State, 219. There we go. Uh, Kentucky, 232. So, yeah, you know, a few games there. Uh, 254, you know, against uh, FSU uh, there. But, uh, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people are going to – Franks is going to have his detractors, and I think that's just the natural part of the first season that he started under Jim McElwain, and a lot of people can't forget that and, uh, you know, didn't blow the doors off of the last year. But as we know, um, you know, I, I've defended him a, a whole lot and, and him getting better. So, um, yeah, you know, you – did he bring it up and yeah, you know, um, the whole, you know, the whole Emory Jones maybe transferring or Felipe Franks even transfer, whoever doesn't win the job, um, it may transfer away here. And, and that Mullen would may, maybe have to make a choice because, you know, Emory expects to play and compete for the starting job. Uh, and Emory may not want to wait. Uh, and with the way quarterbacks transfer and, and get eligible right away, sometimes it seems like you know, that maybe he thinks about transferring. And, you know, I think that's a big risk if, if he wanted to leave in that fashion. But, you know, it brings up a good point in that Mullen may have to make a decision for 2019 in which quarterback gives the best chance to win and which one would Mullen not want to lose. You know, I, I think so. I, I think, though, that the the coach has the ability to speak to each of these guys and understand what makes them tick and understand what they want. And certainly that goes into the decision-making process, but you can't let it guide your decision-making mm -hmm. process. I mean, you got to put out the guy there that everybody wants to ride with. I mean, if everybody sees that Franks is playing better in spring practice and then Emory Jones is starting, well, it's going to be a problem. So you got to put the guy out there that you think gives you the best shot to win. And, you know, again, I think we need to say, okay, what are reasonable expectations? So Franks went from one of the worst quarterbacks in the SEC in 2017 to an above average quarterback in 2018. That is a significant leap. Now to see the leap from above average to elite, that's that's two straight years of making significant leaps. I'm not sure that's a reasonable expectation. I mean, I think a you know, slightly better than last year, about equivalent to last year, that's probably a reasonable thing. I don't I don't know that you always see giant leaps. I think a lot of times what you see is sort of the small things. So, you know, audibling out of bad plays and and you know looking a guy off that he didn't look up look off last year or throwing not throwing into double coverage and throwing into single coverage instead those sorts of little things are going to be more difficult to see and aren't necessarily as obvious and aren't always going to show up in the stat sheet but certainly help the team win and i think those are sort of the things that we should be looking for in 2019 and I think Franks showed enough growth that you think he's going to be able to show that again, This, or at least significant growth in some of those smaller areas. But, you know, it, it, there was a lot of room to improve. There was some low-hanging fruit coming out of 2017, and the low-hanging fruit is gone. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting to see whether he can improve. But, uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you, don't, you have to take into account what someone may end up doing from a transferring perspective and roster perspectives and things like that. But, you know, you got to play the best guy. 
Yep, I think he progresses enough to, to be the guy. Now, what happens during the season? Uh, I think he's, I think he's okay, and I think uh, we'll see Emory Jones in twenty twenty. That's my just uh, my just my the way I see it working out right now. So you know, it could uh, could not happen that way, but uh, we'll see uh, how it all shakes out. Then let's move to the uh, next position, Will, in running back. And uh, the question I'd like to ask here is, of course, uh, kind of obvious here, but who emerges as the second running back? If Malik Davis is fully recovered, um, Damian Pierce came in and averaged 6.1 yards per carry as a true freshman. Uh, but we saw his number of the, uh, numbers of carry goes down as the season went on when Jordan Scarlett and, and LaMichael P. Ryan, who's coming back, uh, led the way there. And you had Franks and Tony getting more carries as well. So you know, let's not forget Malik Davis uh, in a not-so-friendly 2017 season and an offensive system as well that wasn't so friendly. Uh, and, of course, the, the coaching that was going on there, you know, had a season about like Damian Pierce had with just a hair more production uh, before getting injured. Uh, Pierce in 2018 had 69 carries, 424 yards, 6.1 uh, yard average, and two touchdowns. Malik Davis in 2017, 79 carries, so he had 10 more carries, uh, 526 more yards, so about 100 yards more. Two touchdowns, so you know very similar stats there. Uh, with Malik Davis, you know, if you wanted to just go by stats, there you know, a little better stats there. So you know, I think it's safe to say if Florida can feel comfortable going three deep at running back, and maybe even more with Clement and right back there as well. But if it plays out like last season, and it's a pair of backs that get the bulk of the carries, who's the second back behind P. Ryan that would be that player, Davis or Pierce? And I, I'm pretty torn on this because going back to last year and, and previewing the season, when Malik Davis is healthy, he's, uh, he's he's a lethal player at running back. Yeah, I mean, I think this probably boils down to pass protection. I mean, just like it almost always does for the running back. So <laughs> whoever's done a better, whoever's going to do a better job at pass protection is the guy who can be in there on second down when you when you decide when it's either or, right? And then if if they can't pass protect, they can't be in there on third down because they may have to pick up a blitz. So um, those are the kinds of things I think, especially if we're talking about what are you looking for in the spring game. I mean, I'm not necessarily looking for Malik Davis to get ten to get yeah. ten carries in the spring game. What I'm actually looking for is how do they use him and Iverson Clement in the passing game. Yeah. So, you know, when you think about how Mullen used Rainey and Demps, when you think about even how he used Harvin out of the backfield, um, you know, Clement especially is somebody who um, has shown an ability to catch the ball, um, a redshirt freshman now. So, again, you don't have to worry about burning a redshirt. You can try some things. Um, they started to be a little bit more multiple in terms of what they were doing on offense. Um, I think it took them eight or nine games last year to get to the point where they actually had two running backs in the backfield <laughs> at the same time. And now they're going to be able to pull that out day one and start working on some of those things in year two under Mullen. So um, I'm really interested to see how he uses the running backs in the passing game and whether we see any of that stuff in the spring practices and in the spring game, because I think he's got some weapons in the passing game that maybe he didn't have last year. I know Malik Davis two years ago was really the only consistent threat out of the backfield. I mean, Jordan Scarlett didn't catch the ball that much. LaMichael Piran didn't catch the ball that much. And Davis was the guy who was sort of the, the well, running Scar back. Scarlett Scar 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 missed the whole year. <laughs> well, yeah, that too. But two years ago, I guess he didn't know it. So um, it's been a long day, Dave. It's been a long day. But yeah, so Davis was the main threat out of the backfield um, when it came to catching the ball. And I think Davis and Clement are the guys I'll be looking for in the spring. And to go to that point as well, look what we saw the last time the Gators played a football game. And Michael Piran's out there catching tone screens. So, <laughs> you know, so you, you give Mullen the time and, and the weapons that he has there. And you, can you see a, a Clement? Can you see a, a Malik Davis in that similar role that you saw 
what they unearthed in bowl practice with Michael P. Run. Yeah, well, I mean, it, again, it's going to be very interesting to see all those little wrinkles, and I don't expect to see a bunch of those wrinkles during the spring game, especially after what we saw last year. But um, I do expect you to be able to see some things from a formation perspective and uh, you know, some of the things they may have been working on with some of these guys. And, and we'll get into that when we talk about the tight ends a little bit too, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, um, it's going to be pass protection and it's going to be the ability to catch the ball out of the backfield that differentiates these guys. I think they're all pretty good running backs. Um, I think Davis showed a couple of years ago that when the offensive line play breaks down, he has the ability to get a first down. P. Ryan was a little bit less two years ago, but obviously once he got ahead of steam last year, it was very, very effective. So I think it's sort of symbiotic, right? If the offensive line is able to give him a head start, I think P. Ryan can be really, really effective in some of those spaces and, and Pierce as well. But if you need somebody with a little bit of wiggle, then maybe Davis is the guy who, who takes that backup role if the offensive line is struggling at all. All right, let's move to uh, the wide receivers here. And, Will, everyone returns. <laughs> I mean, you know, but the question I have is, can one stand out from the pack? Uh, you know, Van Jefferson led the way, but not by a wide margin. 35 catches, 503 yards, six touchdowns. Not quite, but, but you know, quietly not too far behind was Josh Hammond. Uh, 28 catches, 369 yards, four touchdowns. Uh, then Trevon Grimes, 26 catches, 364 yards with only two touchdowns. Uh, Kadarius Tony, 25 catches, 260 yards and only one touchdown. And, and Thomas Goldcamp uh, released an article detailing Grimes and his production and how it rose in the second half of the season. And the quote from that is, you know, in the first six games of the season, he recorded just 11 catches for 129 yards and one touchdown. Uh, and then uh, it was after a pretty productive sprawl, uh, spring and fall camp, uh, but it wasn't really for lack of targets either. Uh, Grounds was targeted 16 times in those games. However, uh, through his though his targets increased down the stretch, what really stood out was that quarterback Felipe Franks and Grimes simply connected on more of those targets. So uh, Thomas goes on to say, in each of the last six games, Franks targeted Grimes at least three times. In fact, he averaged an extra 1.3 targets per game in the second half of the season. Paid off for the Gators as Grimes wrapped up racked up 15 catches for 235 yards and, and a touchdown. So, you know, of course, encouraging uh, there. But, um, you know, looking at what Grimes did in the second half of the season, uh, Van Jefferson was the number one guy. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, stats didn't really necessarily uh, – jump out and scream at you that he was a number one guy. So I'm not entirely sure Mullen's system's designed for one guy to, to, to jump out, but we all know and, and hope Trevon Grimes and Kadarius Tony can become more of impact players. Uh, but Will, uh, as much as Dan Mullen likes to run the ball uh, and when, you know, especially when they're having success uh, in the, you know, the sheer numbers Florida has at the position, it, it's going to be difficult for one guy to break out. Yeah, I mean, I think Grimes is the guy that you look at and say he's the difference maker. I think Tony, um, there seem to be some limitations. I mean, when they ran some end arounds, he would get caught. He He's very – he's able to go from zero to 60 pretty quickly, but his 60 isn't anywhere near as fast as Grimes or, or even Cleveland. And maybe that's the other guy that we should be looking for is not necessarily in the spring, but Cleveland is the guy who's got the deep speed clearly against Tennessee a couple years ago was able to show that. And so, you know, if, if Franks gets a little bit more accurate on some of those deep balls, maybe Cleveland can take advantage. I mean, you mentioned they're all back, but that also means that, you know, Jefferson senior Grimes, junior Cleveland, senior Tony, junior Hammond, senior Swain, senior, the only guy in spring camp who's young is Copeland so that's the guy I'm going to be looking for in spring camp and and also you know the idea that 
I'm interested to see who they have returning punts and who they have on special teams, just because, you know, I think that tells you a lot about what they think about their depth, right? That if they put somebody back there, um, you know, if they put Copeland back there, then, hey, they're giving him a shot to do that. But if they don't have Copeland back there, you know, maybe they decide to give the punt returns to Tony or maybe they decide to give that to even Grimes. You know, put somebody back there because you're not concerned about an injury because you feel like you have enough depth. So maybe that's one of the things we should be looking for from the wide receiver position is, is who do they have? Who do they have back there for that sort of for, for those sort of things? Well, you guys kind of go into something maybe I'll, I'll shed light on next week when we do the defense. Uh, and, and punt returns, but uh, if they feel good about depth and defensive back, put me uh, put, put Christopher Henderson back there one time. <laughs> well, he certainly got the speed to break it. And again, you know, the, the difference maker. I mean, it's mm-hmm. one of the things last year where um, whenever Freddie, when Freddie Swain went out with an injury, they really struggled even just catching the ball back there. And uh, it doesn't matter if the guy can run a, if the guy can run a hundred miles an hour if he can't catch the punt. So you know, Swain was really steady back there, and I think he did a pretty good job. Obviously, returned one, I think, for a touchdown. Um, but more than anything, not killing him on field position, not letting the ball drop and bounce for thirty yards in the wrong direction. Very rarely were those mistakes made on punt returns. You know, a few years ago with Antonio Callaway, I mean, he would return one for a touchdown, but then next time he'd fair catch it at the two and you just never really knew what you were going to get. And, and Swain was really consistent last year. So maybe that's what Mullen's looking for is consistency on special teams, not necessarily explosion. And again, I think that's something we'll see. And yeah, we'll get into that with the defense a little bit too, but um, you know, I think who they have on special teams says a lot about what they think about their team and what they think about their depth. Um, you know, both from a punt return and a kickoff return team, but also from a punt block and, and a kick block team, you know, who do they have on there? I mean, Chris Rainey, um, you know, very much was participating in those special teams all the time. Urban Meyer was famous for that, right? Having the starters playing on the, uh, on the special teams, but you can only do that if you've got a backup who can spell them if something happens on one of those plays. So, um, you know, the nice part is, is Mullen is starting to build up the depth, and I think we'll start to see that this spring. Well, do you think it's a big factor if there's not uh, – I don't know how much they'll harp on it in spring. You know, we won't get to see it in a spring game, of course, but in those open practices and, you know, the scrimmages that, you know, we won't get to see. Do you think it's a big deal if there's not a, a true number one? I mean, uh, with Jefferson, his numbers could have been a little bit better. We saw plenty of times where he was open down the field and Felipe Franks, you know, couldn't hit him down the field for some of those big plays uh, there. So he – does did seem like the most consistent threat to 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 to, to do something, uh, but I think with the encouraging signs of the offense last year and not really one guy breaking up, I don't think it's it's too big of a deal. But I think when it's clutch time, when it's crunch time, that guy will keep getting those catches, and maybe Florida finds themselves in, in that position. And you know, coming through spring, maybe it's about finding that one guy who can, who who can do that in those situations. Yeah, I mean, maybe so. I I think. Um, you know, those, those really good Florida teams back in 2006 and 2008, you knew they were going to give the ball to Percy Harvin and it didn't matter because Harvin was going to just bust it to the house anyway. I mean, you could double team him. You could, you could gang up on him when they had a guy, when he, when they had him back, back behind the line of scrimmage and were handing the ball to him or direct snapping to him. It, it didn't matter. He was so gifted. He could take it to the house regardless. I don't know if they have a guy like that on the roster right now, at least that we've seen. Maybe Grimes can be that guy, but you know, if you have to hit a guy 30 yards downfield to have a big play, inevitably those are going to be low percentage opportunities, even with the best quarterbacks in the SEC. Um, you know, Franks is certainly 
making his way up, but I wouldn't say he's the best quarterback in the SEC. And so it's going to be a low percentage play to hit that. If you can just throw a little bubble screen to Grimes and he takes it to the house, well, all of a sudden now you got something you can complete 70 or 75% of the time and, and turn it into that. So I think that's maybe the differentiator, not necessarily having a number one guy, but having a guy who, when he gets the ball in his hands behind the line of scrimmage, has the ability to make people miss and take it to the house. And if they can identify a guy who can do that on a consistent basis or who can at least tilt the defense because they're afraid that that will happen, then all of a sudden it opens it up on the other side for some of these guys who've got some speed who may be going deep. Yeah, and we brought it up on the last Gator panel as well. And I really think, Kadarius Tony, yeah, this is a time for him with spring practice, with these reps, with the quarterbacks. This is the time, you know, he he made the move permanently to receiver a year ago. So now he's had that role under his belt for a year. How much has he learned from you know bowl practice to now coming up to spring practice? Has he practiced enough uh in, in this last you know month and or last two months and now leading the spring practice? Hey, has he practice enough has he been in there enough to hone his skills at, as a wide receiver because we we see the potential we saw and he even pretty green at the position saw big plays that he made uh, at times last year so along with you know, getting jacob copeland adjusted as well but more is because he, he's a young guy and all these receivers that are coming back i think the other question is just how better can Kadarius tony be a wide receiver and not not just a playmaker but a wide receiver yeah, you know, the big thing was um, last year, very early in the year, he wasn't even on the field very much. He was only on the field when there was a specific package for him. And then later on, especially in the South Carolina game, I know that I noticed that he was active blocking. And so, you know, obviously he had started to pick up some of those things that Mullen was harping on mm -hmm. for his wide receivers, you know, where you don't get on the field if you don't block. And so as he picked that up later in the year, he got on the field a lot more and was able to be more of a weapon. And that didn't mean they didn't use him early in the year. It just meant that you knew the ball was basically going in his direction if he was on the field. Um, and against South Carolina, they really used him as a decoy until they finally hit a reverse there on that last drive. So, um, so I think that, again, I don't know how much of that you'll see in the spring. Um, but certainly, um, his, the, just that advance in terms of his ability to play the position, I think is significant going through last year. And I think if he continues to show that, then he'll be on the field a lot more and will be able to be more of a weapon. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, again, he's one of those guys who you hope you can throw a screen pass and he can take to the house that you can start setting those sorts of things up. Certainly against Mississippi State last year, the trick play where he was able to turn it into a touchdown that really won him the game. Um, so certainly he's a difference maker, and the more you can get the ball in his hands, the better off you're going to be. Absolutely, and now we'll move on to the tight end position. And you know, pretty simple here uh, for the spring is you know three seniors on their way out. You know, there seems to be the most excitement around Kyle Pitts this spring and and what he can do. Uh, but you know, as we have to wait until fall for uh, Keon Zipper uh, to get on the field. But uh, Pitts is more in that receiver mode at tight end and, and instead of a blocker. Uh, but we know Mullen likes those type of mismatches. You know, especially with with, a, with six six size that, that Pitts brings. So how well can he block will determine just how much he sees the field. Uh, Lucas Kroll can, can throw a pretty pass to Felipe Franks, but you know he also uh, looks like a mismatch. You know, this is the time for him to really show what he can do. Come in, come in the fall late last year after playing baseball. So you know it's going to take time to get adjusted uh, for, for, um, uh, for Lucas Kroll. And uh, – I don't think it can be stated enough. And I think I remember going back and saying when he committed to Florida, 
that it was going to be an adjustment period. So this may be the the the, the time of year where we get to see somebody like Kroll come around. Uh, now that he has a year of adjustment under his belt uh, to, to to get there. So um, I think you can really see a lot of potential at tight end. Kamori Gamble uh, has the blocking part of it. Can he? become a guy who, who can maybe be more relied on in the passing game. Uh, but he, he's a tight end right now that will be, you know, blocking and in certain short yard situations, goal line situations, you know, also in there when they want to get the run game going. Uh, Dante Lang also has a chance to prove himself in the spring, but we just haven't seen much from him. Um, so the issue there, Will, is the, the type of players that you're looking at here is there might be a little predictability in how these – tight ends are unless one of them become can become a, a well-rounded tight end you know i do know one thing though I, I'm, I'm ready to see a tight end take an inside shovel pass again <laughs> well we saw one last year in that first game sort of in the tip of the cap to all the Gator <laughs> fans and then and then never saw it again but uh you know it, it's an interesting point i mean pitts was outside pretty mm-hmm. much all of i mean he had that slant route slant route that was really all i can really remember them throwing to him um you know and siante lewis and and moral stevens as much as they were limited they were part of the offensive line that that came back with a lot of continuity last year and i think this is maybe one of the hidden things when you look at what florida has to replace on offense this year is not only do they have to replace four starters on the offensive line but now they got to replace those blocking guys at tight end and you know pitts did not do a whole lot of that last year gamble you mentioned he's a little bit more of a blocker but he wasn't the starter so again if you look at your actual line and what you're going to have to do to block um you know that's the area where i think the tight ends can be of concern i mean you obviously would love to have pits out there but if you can't block effectively then it's sort of like the running backs you can't pass protect right you can't get on the field except for in specified packages so um you know kroll's development may be key here if he's got he's got the size to really present problems a lot like gronkowski does for the patriots right i mean gronk can go in there and he can block and he can block and he can block and then all of a sudden they they you know in the Super Bowl was a perfect example. He sort of chipped the guy on the edge and then ran a little wheel route, and that was got the, that's what got the Patriots going in that fourth quarter. Kroll has that kind of size and ability. The question is, is he going to be able to do it consistently enough um, over the long haul? And so, you know, I I think um, anytime you're talking about line play and blocking, you talk about continuity, and the tight ends are a big part of that. And so, so Florida doesn't just have to replace that on the offensive line; they have to replace the tight end too. And not, not only that, you know, Santa Lewis. Kind of, he was a leader on the team as well. Uh, kind of, you know, the, all the time that he had been at Florida, uh, the coaching change was under, you know, from McElwain to Mullen, and uh, he. I remember the the locker room speech after the Peach Bowl, uh, and they kind of, and Mullen gave his speech, and Deontay Lewis was one of the first players to kind of speak up and speaking. He was ready to quit football. wasn't even going to play uh, this past season, and you know, Dan Mullen. Um, sold him on, on play in, and it, but the way he was bringing about uh, a change in culture there, uh, Seante Lewis, you know, for you know, what no eye popping stats, you know, had some, had some good plays last year, but you know, really key in blocks in the run game, like you mentioned. And but there was a lot of leadership there, you know, there was the off field issue, of course, with the frying pan <laughs> before the season, uh, but uh, yeah, everything kind of calmed down from that. But Seante Lewis was also a, a pretty good leader that a lot of guys really looked up to last year. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about the defense next week. But, um, you know, they're, they're, 
the guys on the offensive line, I mean, guys like Martez Ivy, who are seniors who came back for their senior year, Jawan Taylor, obviously playing very well on the, on the, at right guard. And then Lewis at, at sort of a tight end who, you know, who's been in those trenches for the last three or four years. Um, you know, they don't have that experience anymore and, and experience counts for a lot, especially in the sec, especially up front. And, you know, really when you look at the offense, I mean, we can talk about who's going to be the second running back or who's going to be the fourth wide receiver. You know, th- those are relatively minor issues. When you start talking about leadership and tight end and, and continuity up front, that's really where you start to say, okay, this is the place where Florida is going to have to really show something in, in, in both the spring and, and heading into the year. Uh, well, it's time. Biggest question on the roster. <laughs> it's uh, uh, can't be stressed enough. We saw how much of uh, how much this you know offensive line improved from game one to go- to game twelve last year. I remember going back to uh, the you know the the second game of the season against Kentucky, and it looked like the same old same old offensive line. And you know what a and even going back to the uh, going back to the Peach Bowl, I remember you and I kind of texting back and forth, and it was like, oh man, that this. Just Florida Michigan game started just like the last one did. Uh, but, you know, that was just a little blip in the radar. Uh, that Kentucky game was a little blip on the radar and just the beginning of that Michigan game kind of kind of, kind of the same way there. Uh, but the offensive line really come a long way, but loses four of those five guys who, who started. You know, but not only is it about finding four new starters, but you got to find some depth now too uh, with, 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 you know, the, the four guys that you lost. Uh, so, you know, kind of a trickle-down effect here. And, you know, we spoke on it uh, last week about, you know, how, how it's – your perfect timing for a highly rated recruit, Richard Garage, to find his way. Uh, I wanted to tackle spots along with Stone Forsyth, who I think is probably going to be uh, at one of the other ones. Uh, those two, I think, get the first crack at trying to replace Martez, Ivy, and Jawan Taylor. Uh, and they don't go with experience to kind of you know, fill in you know, two more spots. If you think about it, you can really say while Florida has to replace four starters, you know, Brett Hege as one of those replacements is it's really like having to only replace three because of his experience and, and versatility uh, and, and the playing time that he's got in the last two years. Now he has got to stay healthy, uh, but him probably at left guard and Nick Buchanan at center. I think it's the way it starts and it gives you some experience to, to start with, with those two, now, you know, who has the best chance at cracking that right guard spot? Is it the Noah Banks who can probably play multiple positions on the offensive line? Uh, can he get on the field this spring uh, after dealing with the injury? So we'll kind of kind of see his prognosis as we go forward. Uh, Chris Bleich is uh, another young guy that will get an opportunity. Uh, but it's also time for guys that are older to come in and, and prove themselves, uh, like T.J. Moore, uh, who can fit into the tackle rotation with Gene DeLance. Um, so, you know, this is a position grouping that has – has to come together fast uh, this spring and hope some sort of rotation is figured out in the spring to, to kind of move forward in the fall camp uh, so that rotation can get all the ramps, reps going into fall camp. So, of course, in, in order for this offense to, to take the next step, in order for Felipe Franks to, 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 to progress, in order for this run game to build off last year's late season success, you know, this offensive line is the group that, that's instrumental in all that and, and coming together. So it's a huge key to the season – uh, and maybe just how far the Gators can go. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, you mentioned injuries. I think that's going to be something that's pretty key, both in the spring and in in the fall. You know, so really the starting offensive line pretty much was the starting offensive line all last year. I think a lot of that had to do why with why the uh, the line played so much better last year and, and certainly was playing very, very strongly at the end. Um, Buchanan did a really nice job stepping in and playing center. I do wonder whether he can maybe slide over to guard. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether he has that capability, but if he can slide over to guard, you know, 
both Hevesy and Mullen were very high on Graham McDowell. He was a commit at Mississippi State, who then, when Mullen came to Florida, decided to commit to Florida and is a center prospect. So, um, you know, if McDowell can slide in there at center and then you can move Buchanan to one of the guards, maybe that gives you some depth that you that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Certainly, if you've got two guys who can play center, that's important just in case one of them goes down so you can actually get the shotgun snap <laughs> to the guy who's back there. Um, I'm really interested to see how well Garage plays. I mean, he's somebody who um, I expected to see play a little bit last year and I, you know we didn't necessarily see that at all and then obviously you've got the freshman I mean it's it's not a secret that that Florida's offensive line has a lot of turnover um, there's a reason there were seven recruits and four of them blue chips coming in in this in this 2019 cycle so you got Aguacuan you got Tarkeen you got Herod you got White here in the spring and then you got Hammond Wilson and Simons coming in in the fall um, you know I, I think the reality is is just like everywhere else I mean it's going to be a competition and the best guy's going to play. But I think there's really some opportunity here for some of the freshmen, especially the guys who are early enrollees to probably make an impact early on and push for even starting jobs, just because, you know, it's not as if the guys who are, who are stepping in now have necessarily logged a whole lot of time in those games. I mean, some mop up duty and different things like that, but there wasn't really any mop up duty till last year. So, Mm. so, you know, it's not as if those guys have a whole lot of game minutes. And so I do think there's going to be an opportunity for some of those freshmen to step in. So I think, you know, you look at where are the guys actually playing on the line, you know, or, you know, the guys who played last year, are they sort of moving around a little bit? Um, you know, Heggie obviously has played a lot of guard. Where do you put him? Um, then you got Banks and Blythe, sort of the guys that they brought in last year. But I, I, I'd really key in on McDowell. I think McDowell maybe is the, at least in the spring, sort of the key to telling you what's going on. Because if McDowell can step in and play, um, then I think that sort of opens things up. I'm glad you brought him up. Yeah, Griffin McDowell is not a name I really even, yeah, I kind of just, kind of, I really did just kind of go over saying, I remember, Liking him, as you said, just because the coaching staff uh, was really high on him as well. Uh, the guy that they really look out for there. Um, man, it's just going back to leadership uh, as well. Well, we get, like you said, with uh, well, like we were going with Deontay Lewis and Martez Ivy you know, was picked to go to SEC Media Day. So with Dan Mullen, and you know, not necessarily the big outspoken type of player, really quiet, but uh, it maybe you know, didn't live up to the to the five star billing that he you know was recruited into. But uh, I think replacing him and Taylor at those tackle spots. I mean, I, I think you know the two guys you want there. Like I said, I think Garage and, and Forsyth are your two guys. But with Miami being game one, and yes, they struggled you know, mightily last season, but they're going to bring athletes. They're going to be, bring an athletic front seven. You know, really shoring up those two tackle spots before you get to that game really starts this spring. And also, we know this offense wants to be built on running the ball. We saw it when uh, this offense was at its best. They were able to run the ball, especially between the tackles. Um, you know, so while those running backs deserve a lot of credit, the inside of that line is really going to have to come together pretty fast. Yeah, though, you know, one of the nice things is about the schedule next year, at least, you know, the Miami games in Orlando, they can't even get the guys to go to the stadium in Miami. So you figure that's going to be a pretty friendly, friendly crowd for Florida. And then you got UT Martin. You do have to go to Kentucky. But again, that's um, that's not necessarily the loudest place in the SEC. And then you got Tennessee at home, Towson at home and Auburn at home. So really you know, you then have to go to Baton Rouge, which obviously is going to be a pretty loud, pretty loud and raucous environment. But at the same time, at that point, you got five or six games under your belt. So um, if they can get past sort of that initial, 
the initial hump, and obviously the Miami game is going to tell us a lot, but if you can get past that initial hump, it's not as if there's a whole lot of road games early like there were last year, right? I mean, at Tennessee, at Mississippi State, those very early road games where you thought maybe the offensive line might struggle, and they actually played very, very well in those games. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of time to break these guys in, and, and certainly I think we'll we'll see that. But I really do sort of think that some of these freshmen are going to have an opportunity, and I think uh, I think it'll be interesting to see, especially in the spring, how much time they actually get. Um, and whether they're in that rotation, you know, whether whether they're they're sort of mixing and matching still, or whether Mullen and Hevesy have decided, hey, these are our guys that we're going to go with, and everybody's sort of the backups from there. I think that is the key. If they can identify their five and who they want to fill them in with, that's pretty key. And how fast this offensive line can grow, especially you. Uh, in, in the fall. So, will we? Uh, before we wrap it up here, we just mentioned uh, the Miami game, and I think uh, a pretty hot topic of the movement of this game or the, the, the uh, date movement and when this game could be played. And of course uh, I, I don't think you've missed it out there, but if you have, there is some uh, waiting basically on the NCAA word now that uh, if this Florida Miami game will get moved up a week. Um, so, you know, spring practice is about to kick off, but uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, talk is, is of, uh, of this Miami game, especially late last week, uh, get our thoughts on it because, you know, it was uh, – Gator Nation's pretty split on this. I remember I, I posted a poll and uh, a lot more – I think it was 53% uh, were in favor of, of moving the game uh, a week earlier, the Saturday before. Um, so it would be August 24th. And just like I said, waiting on the NCAA to approve this because the NCAA, uh, ESPN came to both schools and, and to kick off the 150 years of college football, uh, ESPN pegged Florida-Miami to be the game that they wanted to do that with. They went to both schools in December there, and both schools are interested in, in moving it. And it's really just in the NCAA, NCAA hands now. And if they approve it, you can uh, you can best bet the game's going to be moved to, to August 24th. So we'll, of course – a lot of people are having to rearrange travel plans, vacation plans, uh, moving it from a three-day weekend for the Labor Day weekend. Uh, this is uh, a pretty, pretty unique story here uh, in Gator Nation. Yeah, I mean, I, I empathize with people who've already bought tickets or already bought plane tickets or, um, you know, have already sort of arranged their, their lives around a schedule that was released, you know, late last year and now – you know, things are being changed. It's a little bit annoying that they sort of knew that they were going to be doing at least requesting this in December. Cause even if they just sort of said, Hey, hold off for a second, don't, don't do all your reservations first though. I know they don't want to do that because they want to make sure that they maximize the revenue that they're getting out of this. I mean, and that's really what this boils down to, right? Is it's great exposure for the university. I'm sure they get paid extra for doing it. Um, you know, so you can't simultaneously complain about facilities and different things like that. And then say, Oh, you can't move this game. But I, but I certainly empathize with people who who've already planned. And, and I think, uh, I think there's certainly room for improvement in terms of the way that they did this. It's not as if they didn't know that it was the 150th anniversary, <laughs> you know, two years ago, these are the kinds of things you tend to figure they plan more than a year ahead of time. And, and the fact that they're just making this change now is a little bit annoying, but, um, you know, we'll all be glued to the TV. I'm sure those of us who aren't going and, uh, and, and, you know, even if I'm at a lake house or something, I'll make sure I'm at a bar if I can't get reception because I'm not missing the opening game against Miami. And I think most Gator fans are like that. So um, it's a little bit inconvenient, but it's also going to be kind of cool, right, to be yeah. on the stage, be, be um, and, and especially because of, you know, I think Florida is going to be favored pretty obviously. Um, I think we expect Florida to come out and put up an impressive performance. And when you get to do that with everybody watching in the eyes of every high school kid in Florida, 
watching that game, I mean, it's it's a big deal for them to come out and have an impressive showing and and be able to look at a kid across the table when you're going to recruit him and say, you know, look at what we just did to Miami. And and if it gives you that ability, then, hey, it's important. Yeah, I think it's important also to note that you know, this wasn't originally Florida Miami's uh, idea. It was the ESPN uh, that, that sparked the conversation and, and got it going. But, uh, yeah, you know, sign me up for the game being a week earlier. Uh, you know, fall camp will start a week earlier. The game will get a week earlier. Florida won't get any extra number of practices out of it. They just move every, kind of everything up to get three bye weeks. So I think it kind of helps the season as well uh, when you look at it. You know, this is one of the weird years where the calendar falls where – Teams are getting two bye weeks anyway, but if Florida was able to to move this game a week up uh, earlier, then they would have three bye weeks as they would have a bye week, uh, the basically the opening weekend uh, of college football when everybody else is playing. So, Will, there's a kind of a built-in advantage to moving the game up as well. Oh, man, there, there's definitely an advantage, especially with what we just talked about with the offensive line. You know, all of a sudden you play Miami, there are going to be breakdowns. There are going to be things that need to be improved on, you know, Again, it's a matter of expectations. Like you can't expect Franks to remain clean in that game because there's going to be somebody on the offensive line who screws something up. And, you know, there may even be a line check that gets screwed up by the quarterback because he's still learning in the system. So, you know, there's going to be some things they need to clean up and they have a full week to do that. And then they have a cupcake after that to sort of lick their wounds. And then you're really sort of heading into the teeth of the schedule. And, you know, attrition in the SEC is always an issue. Um, I think the more bye weeks you get, the more the more talented team is going to show up and win the game. I think when you get sort of nicked, um, that's when the talent starts to become a little bit more less important because each team's nicked and and you know you don't necessarily get the best performance out of everybody. So um, you know those extra bye weeks are going to be important, and I think uh, having three of them in the season it's going to be a little bit annoying as fans, right? You just, <laughs> just sort of start and stop, start and stop, start yeah. and stop. But, uh, you know, we'll have to find stuff to talk about in the off weeks, which, uh, yeah. you know, knowing Gator Nation, that probably won't be a problem. Something will pop up. But, uh, <laughs> but I think I, I think I can uh, I think I can fathom talking about uh, Florida beating Miami for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll have to have somebody from uh, from Miami on in between. Just yeah. get them to agree to it before the before <laughs> the game. And uh, <laughs> suppose that means you have to have them on if you lose, too. But uh, yeah, true. <laughs> But anyway, no, I mean, I, I think um, that sort of an extra bye week is always a good thing. There's a lot of evidence when you look at when you look at how teams perform coming off of bye weeks, they perform a lot better. A lot of that has to do with because the bye week is usually six or seven games into the season and it gives you an opportunity to get healthy. And um, but again, there's probably going to be some injuries coming out of that Miami game and two weeks to heal up will be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, Will, uh, thanks for joining us here while we. Uh... You know, broken down, or uh, we break down the offense uh, for um, spring practice. And next week, we'll do the defense, where uh, have to replace a whole lot of playmakers uh, from Chauncey Gardner Johnson, Jacob Polite, and CC Jefferson. Uh, replacing those guys, and we'll uh, we'll take a look at the, what the Gators have to do there. Yeah, but they don't have to replace the defensive coordinator. So, again, continuity, I think, does sort of reign here. And, uh, yeah, it'll be. I look forward to talking about it and sort of looking at what we should be looking for in the spring practices and the spring game. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to talking about that next week. All right, it's Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site, readandreaction.com. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.